Melanie Tate here with you and you are on Now Hear This. Now one of the really special things about Now Hear This is that some storytellers come again and again to share their stories and in this time you see them becoming more and more comfortable and confident with sharing their stories with an audience. And they also seem to hone the stories they tell. It's a real joy to watch. Today on the show, three from our last slam of last year, where the theme was unexpected. We'll hear about a heartbreaking letter, a homeless man convinced of a conspiracy, and what it's like to be on Australian Idol. And these are all stories from storytellers who have told stories again and again at Now Hear This. The first story is from Sophie Townsend, who, over the past three years, has been sharing some extraordinary stories with us. Um, I was was going to tell a story about breastfeeding tonight, um, because lactation can happen very unexpectedly. Um, But something actually really unexpected happened just today. So this is... um, This is quite raw. Um, I got a letter in the post today, which was unexpected in itself because um, pretty much everything that comes through my mailbox is crap my teenage daughters have ordered online using using my credit cards. Um, But it was a letter with an email stamp on it and it came from America. And it was from this woman who'd been living in Connecticut for the last dozen or so years. And um, she was clearly a little bit in love with my husband. And to be specific, she was actually a little bit in love with my dead husband. Um, Russell died three years ago. And I, um, her writing style was a bit vague... And I couldn't work out if... Um, yeah, I can still be critical at these moments. Um, um, I couldn't work out if she knew that Russell had died. And so I went into my etiquette um, panic and thought, do I need to tell this woman? How do I do that? There's no return address. I don't... You know. Um, but uh, so... And then I thought, well, hang on. If she doesn't know he's dead, why is she writing to me? And then I immediately thought, well, clearly there's been a kid born out of wedlock and (laughs) she's writing to me to get the support, the child support that he hasn't been sending for the last three years because he's dead but she doesn't know it. And then I thought, I'm watching too much daytime television. (laughs) I really have to... And as I read on, it was um, clear that she did know that he died and she'd only just found out and it was a shock, it was a terrible shock to her and she was terribly upset. At which point I thought, yeah, it was pretty rough for me too because I, I did feel a little hostile and she, she wrote, you know, I'm sorry if this upsets you and, you know, my word, it upset me because she was writing um, about her relationship with Russell at university and um, she'd obviously really fallen deeply in love with him and he'd been very kind to her and um, they had this lovely friendship romance um, and he'd spent a lot of time 
reading her Icelandic poetry. <laughs> in Icelandic. Um, and I immediately thought, bastard. We were together 15 years. Was there even so much as an Icelandic sonnet? Not so um, he also, She also wrote that they'd spent hours together discussing Beowulf. Again. It, it had not come up in our 15 years. And to, to be fair to Russell, um, I think he had tried to engage me in Beowulf, but the sort of blank look on my face had steered him away. But she did describe him as very kind and with this shiny black hair and very romantic and um, had a motorbike and read poetry. And um, I felt very jealous because she had this memory of him. Um, and I had had a marriage with him and kids, and we were generally too tired for motorbikes and romance. And, but she, she, had this, she had this romantic vision of him untainted by him getting sick and untainted by watching him get thin and die. And it was even untainted by watching him yelling at the kids when he was tired and cranky. You know, it was total romance. And it went on for a long time, um, a little too long. And I, I, I did start to get worried that there would be a sex reference, but, um, which I was, I was really prepared to lose it then. But... Um, she clearly knew something of etiquette too and that was, that was left unsaid. And then she started talking about how Russell often turned up late to their dates and I thought, typical. <laughs> and she also told a story about how they spent a lot of time driving together and whenever she got behind the wheel he'd get really anxious and quite hostile about her driving style and I thought, yeah, that sounds familiar. <laughs> But then she said the most disappointing thing that had happened was when he looked her in the eye and said, you know what, I don't want to get married and I'm never going to have kids and I never want to settle down. And she knew that he was telling it like it was and she had to look elsewhere. Um, and he said the same thing to me at the beginning of our relationship and like Beowulf, I just completely ignored it. <laughs> and we ended up having a beautiful marriage and two beautiful children. And um, I, was, I was really grateful to her at the end of that letter after being in this sort of fairly white-hot rage um, because she'd given me an, an image of him as... Um, you know, full of kooky, obscure interests and romance and wisdom. And he brought that to my marriage, our marriage. And um, he was full of that too. And, you know, he was really cranky a lot of the time, but there was a lot of gloriousness and there wasn't a motorbike, but there was, you know, we had a great adventure together. And... Um, but what she really told me was that he loved me enough to stay around and to 
settle down and have that marriage and have those children's children, which for him was completely unexpected. Sophie Townsend told that story at the Now Hear This Storytelling Slam in Sydney late last year. You're on Now Hear This, this is RN and I'm Melanie Tate. If you'd like to tell a story this year and are lucky enough to live in Noosa, we would love to hear from you because we're having a Now Hear This at the Noosa Long Weekend Festival in July. Now, it feels like a long, long way away, but it's really not. The theme is the last time. So if you've got a story of the last time, do email us very soon on nowhearthis at abc.net.au. Coming up soon on RN's Now Hear This, Inside Australian Idol. But now, Sonny Mickelson proves everyone has a story. About ten years ago, I lived in King's Cross, and I used to walk to and from work every morning and afternoon through Hyde Park. And every morning and afternoon, I'd stop and say hello to Ronnie. Ronnie was one of the homeless guys living in the park. And normally, uh, homelessness is an issue that just makes me feel very sad and very helpless. But Ronnie managed to make it look kind of (laughs) cool. He was uh, an old-school hobo straight out of central casting, like the only thing missing was the stick and the bundle. (laughs) He was um, born in China, so he had a long, straggly beard that made him look like he had something very wise to impart (laughs) about life and how it should be lived. And so I guess fairly naturally, I was curious about why he was living in the park. Um, One afternoon, I went past him carrying this massive shopping bag, and he was all, uh, what's in the bag? And I said, "Um, fabric, I'm building a dress. uh, my, My flat looks like an explosion in a pincushion factory. And he was like, I know all about that. My mum used to sew... Uh, All of our clothes, when I was growing up, she had one of those old-fashioned sewing machines with the pedals. And so after that, we were friends. And uh, every afternoon, we would share a little something about our lives. So pretty soon, Ronnie knew that I hated my job, and um, I was waiting for my boyfriend to move over from Ireland. And I was a very average sewer. (laughs) and I learned a few things about him I found out that he um, hated sleeping at the shelters because they were too noisy and too violent so he preferred sleeping in the park even though he didn't get any sleep when it rained and he often got hassled by teenagers and uh, I couldn't help wondering you know how to answer that big question of why and how to ask that big question of why. Because I couldn't help thinking that if I could crack that mystery, I could somehow help him. But uh, I wasn't stupid, and I did know that homelessness isn't just about poverty or bad luck. Um, Something like 75% of homeless people have a mental illness. But when the opportunity came up, I did ask him, "Um, why are you living in the park, Ronnie? And... uh, He told me a pretty sad story about how um, he'd grown up in Campbelltown and for 
a long time he was morbidly obese and he had diabetes and he was lonely and he was sad. And so I was like, so this was a choice? And he said, no, uh, it's a lot more complicated than that. And his whole demeanor changed and his eyes kind of narrowed. And he said, the John Howard government is keeping me in the park. They follow me all the time. They won't let me leave. And I felt very sad because then I realized this is some kind of paranoid delusion um, and no amount of amateur psychiatry was going to solve that problem, you know. So I kind of have this core belief that people need to be accepted and people are crying out to be accepted for who they are and that was the best thing I could do for Ronnie was just accept him and try to be his friend. So... I sort of started to notice that um, some t sometimes when I passed by, he had that big cliched uh, homeless guy sign with the cramped writing with the big conspiracy theory on it. <laughs> and he'd go, beautiful morning. <laughs> and I'd go, isn't it though? <laughs> <laughs> and one day the happy day arrived for me when my partner Mike arrived from Ireland and uh, we went for a walk through the park and there was Ronnie sitting on a park bench looking like an extra from Waiting for a Godo production or something. <laughs> and so I introduced them and they hit it off straight away. They shook hands. They started talking about the soccer, like blah, 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 soccer. <laughs> and while this was happening, Ronnie suddenly uh, stopped and sort of shuffled sideways like he was putting Mike between him and something. And he goes, sorry, that guy's been following me all day. So we followed his gaze behind us. About 20 metres away in the bushes, I shit you not, <laughs> there was a guy lying on his belly with a camera and a telephoto zoom lens pointed at Ronnie. <laughs> I'm not, uh, I'm not suggesting that this was, you know, a government conspiracy. <laughs> this was most likely a photography student going, what a picturesque hobo. <laughs> and I don't think it's this guy's fault, but it was just like, wow, the world really is conspiring to keep Ronnie living in the park. Sonny Mickelson told that story at the most recent Now Hear This Storytelling Slam in Sydney. You're on Now Hear This with me, Melanie Tate. It's really lovely to have you here this afternoon. Hi, I'm Michael Williams. On Blueprint for Living, we're looking to rehabilitate the good name of Absinthe. Is it a cheeky aniseed treat that might inspire artistic greatness or a green devil responsible for murder, mayhem and madness? We're really on the cusp of the new golden age because it's just been gone for so long. You know, the last golden age was the Belle Epoque. And if you think absinthe has a bad name, what about sugar? All that plus gardens, architecture, reviews and more from Blueprint for Living anytime at the RN website. Our last story is from Mart Bassa. Now, Mart came to our slam for well over a year before he got up and told a story. Since then, he's told three, and aren't we lucky? Because now we're all going to know what it's like 
what it's truly like behind the scenes of reality TV. This story is one of my favourites and I really hope you love it too. Here's Mark Basser. Okay, so for, for my, my moment, I guess my, my 15 minutes of fame, or maybe it was 10, <laughs> maybe it was less because um, unexpectedly I was portrayed as a crazy um, and wacky person when I auditioned for Australian Idol. Um, <laughs> So, as you can tell, I'm really crazy right now. But um, it was 2007, and I just moved to Melbourne from Sydney. And um, anyway, they, they showed, they aired it uh, in 2008, like March. And the audition was at the MCG, and it was beautiful. Like, I was like, I've never been to the MCG. I'm not a cricket fan. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> But the light and the grass was so beautiful. I remember that clearly. I go, wow. <laughs> this is going to be a great day. And um, <laughs> uh, back in Sydney, I was part of a choir. And um, I, I, I've, I've sung a fair bit. And, um, but I wouldn't call myself a singer. But everyone would be like, oh, my gosh, you should, you should really audition. You would get in <laughs> instantly. But, like... No one actually really knows. I didn't know. I thought I would get in. And um, I, didn't, I didn't know that um, there were so many producers. And so the first audition I sang, and then I, and then I got in. I thought, oh, cool. Oh, oh I'm in. And then um, you have to sing again. And, um, and then I got in. I started to believe people, and I thought, oh, my gosh, they really like you. Like, you have a voice. <laughs> Because, you know, like, um, when you watch a show and they show these people who are terrible singers, but they have this sense of belief, which, which I really wanted, but I don't have. <laughs> but at that moment, after the second round of producers, I thought, maybe they're right. And um, so the third lot of auditions, uh, or the third lot of me singing, um, was with uh, the guy that produced it, the show. I don't remember his name, Greg. He, lived, he lives in the northern beaches where I grew up. And um, in fact, as part of the choir, we actually, before the show ever started, um, they auditioned the judges that were to be on the show. Um, so I met Dico then, and Kate Sobrano was auditioned as well. And so um, they were really lovely. And um, anyway, then I see him, and I, I just pretend that I didn't know him or that I'd never... Because I got paid 50 bucks to audition, like, as a pretend singer, and, the, and then they judge you, etc. But anyway, so he was, um, he was there, and, and then I got in. And then after that, they would follow me around with the camera. And... I am a nut in front of the camera. I am like a ham. And, but I thought, oh, they really love me. I felt like Sally Field. <laughs> they really love me. And um, <laughs> um, from that movie. Um, anyway, so 
every time they came into the camera, I go, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be on the show. And I'm pretty sure I, I was starting to sing, sing already, like, what will I sing for the finals? I will sing Michael Jackson because everybody said I sounded like Michael Jackson when I sang. And then I thought, what will I sing for the Beatles? What would... Anyway, I was getting ahead of myself, but um, when, when they put the camera in my face, I was singing Björk. I was... <laughs> It's oh so quiet. And I was dancing because, actually, before being a choir, I was a dancer as well. So I was, like, going to be a triple threat at this point. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so the audition comes, the final audition. It happens, like, I think on the same day. It was Dicko, and it was Marsha Hines, and it was Kyle Santalance. And (laughs) so... (laughs) And um, so, actually, I, I, I want to tell you just quickly, I had two um, singing teachers at this point, and one of them told me, you should sing Mika's or Micah's um, Grace Kelly. Does anybody know that song? Yeah. yeah? I could be brown, I could be blue, I could be violet sky, etc. So... <laughs> So I felt really camp, and I thought I was ready. I could reach the high notes, and I was wearing this peachy top, brown things. Anyway, (laughs) and I sang, and I I was just so glad to reach those high notes. I was so high on adrenaline, like I am now, and and I ran around in circles when I finished the song, because I thought, I can't believe they made me sing the whole song. And... um, so I was pretty good, right? Okay. And then I ran and I asked, can I sing another song? And that wasn't to be, but they all said no. Uh, <laughs> they all said no. I thought Marsha was quite cold. Dicko was the nicest. Kyle Sanderland said, just a little too gay for me. And he just mentioned what I wore, like, you know, because I was kind of coordinating. <laughs> I thanked them, I walked out of the room, they interviewed me, and they said, um, why do you think you didn't get in? Uh, I said, maybe because I was a little too gay. And this is what they showed, uh, they showed how crazy I was, how dancing, I can't believe I showed, I showed them so much material of craziness, of course they were going to do that. And um, my friend put it up on YouTube, and then <laughs> people were commenting, oh my gosh, what drugs is he on? And... <laughs> My friends who know me were saying, I've known Mart since, uh, since high school. He does not take drugs. And um, it was just the high. And this, I called my friend. I said, I did this for Australian Idol. And she goes, you are never going to another audition without me. And uh, then I told him, could you please take it down? Because um, people think that's really me. So, uh, <laughs> and I'm not like that crazy. But maybe I am a little too gay. Thank you. <laughs> Mark Basser with that story. And that's all we have time for today on Now Hear This. The stories you've heard were recorded by Martin Peralta and Hayley Forward with technical production from Lila Schooner. If you'd like to hear more stories or find out more information about Now Hear This, the best place is probably our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash abcrnnowhearthis. That's facebook.com slash abcrnnowhearthis. 
RN Now Hear This. Like us and you'll find out all the information you need to. I'm Melanie Tate and I hope the rest of your Sunday is completely lovely and that you get a story or two out of it. Thank you.